This is Animeikos. This is where we deep dive into the most creative anime, manga, and light novels of our time. So this is going to be my thoughts on volume 13 of Bakano. Now, spoilers. Okay, you've been warned. All right. I mean, there's so so much to cover. Okay, so this is the second half of the story. And just off the bat, I enjoyed this novel a lot more than volume 12. And that was largely for that end scene and you know who. And I'll definitely talk about that later. Um, but now I really did like the volume, um, not the volume, <laughs> the, well, I did, but like the villain group of like the story, like Sample. They were absolutely like crazy and fanatic and bit by bit they were showcased, like we were showcased what their religious doctrine was. Also tying it in with Illness' backstory from the previous novel was really smart. And yeah, that was super creepy. And Bride being the main antagonist, like he was pretty good. He was unhinged. He had a few quirks that stood out, like stabbing his neck with like glucose or something. Um, I, I can't remember what specifically he injected, but it was to kind of get himself buzzed. And... um. Yeah, and also the abuse to all the kids and stuff from this religious cult was intense. It was it was graphic. Also, what he did to um Celise was just horrible. Like I was rooting for her all throughout the novel, and I'm really really glad she gets to, like stick it to him at the end, like dropping him between two ships as they rock together, and then his arms flying off, and then getting in by a shark. Like that was all like really like satisfying. Um. That being said, the the guy was seriously dedicated to the cause. Um, So their doctrine was they basically denied God, and then they still needed to have some sort of God or higher power to believe in. But because they denied God, they could choose whoever, right? They had a choice now, right? And they also wanted to not feel pain. And so what they do is they inflict pain on, like, children and whoever they choose as sacrificial lambs. Um, And they're generally children, which is terrible. And it's horrible, horrible pain as well. Like, it's, like, straight-up torture. And they made the kids, like, listen to their own screams. It's just, it's just wild. Um, but, yeah, it's also said that they're taking drugs, and that's why they didn't feel pain, and that's why they acted as zombies. I think I would prefer them to not be using drugs. Like, even though it doesn't make sense, they could get up from being injured because they no longer felt pain. As in, like, the sacrificial lambs went through enough pain for them as, like, a substitution, and because of that, they, I don't know, like, were able to use that, like, use the fact that other people are going through extra pain to kind of calm themselves down and then just no longer feel it or something. Um, that is just kind of part of the doctrine. But I guess some drug was also involved, and that does make a lot more sense. I don't know. Now, at the end, the two secretary twins and that kind of gorilla-esque person, they do become, like, pseudo-immortals, so that's interesting. And I think it's a good thing to kind of look forward to. Oh, and the, like, attire of the villains looked awesome. I really loved it. Um, Like, the red and the black. It looked good. It was very villainous. Now, there will be one more villain I talk about, but uh, I'll keep that for later. Um, Stay tuned. And I'll talk about Shez later as well. Now, another major character who I really liked was Rookie, also known as Lucian, Lucian, Lucino, I think? Campanella. I mean, this was a huge surprise. Like, a descendant of Huey and Monica and, like, the head of the Mask Makers. He feels like... Like, he feels the burden of being that descendant. We find out that apparently Huey killed Monica, so that was huge in of itself, or at least at the time. This is rectified later, but yeah, he wants to get revenge on Huey for that action he seemingly did. Now, majority of this arc surrounds how he's giving fake smiles and being inauthentic, and most people actually know this. Out of all the mask makers, he has the thickest mask, even though he's not wearing one. 
and it's because he's just still he's still just a kid. And him and aging, um, they have a really good d- dynamic. Like aging was dope. She's funny. She's kind of a good foil to his character. Now I also like Rookie's dynamic with Alma. Alma is such an enigma, and he's kind of wild, and he's pretty crazy in of itself. And he's one of the people um, he's hunting. Like he's hunting like these immortals. Um, and yet every time Alma rocked up, he would be startled. Like, he just can't comprehend what's going on in his head. He can't really understand why Elmer's being nice to him. Um, Elmer just wants him to genuinely smile. And he wants that for everyone. So that being Elmer's role um, made perfect sense. Now, anyways, I'm curious to see how Rookie develops and if he ever leaves, like, the cult that he's in, like, the Mask Makers or anything like that. So we'll have to see. And I'm, I want to see him be more authentic. Um, he hates murdering people. That's very obvious, but... The burden of being a descendant of Huey and knowing that, you know, Monica in quotation marks was killed by him is too heavy. So he feels like he has to do it, um, but he doesn't. And it's not him actually being real. Now, like I said, um, Elmer's like throughout the story is mostly in the background and he's just being Elmer. Um, I already mentioned what he does and he's mostly just connecting with Rookie. Um, Sylvie's there too. Um, Bride wants her to be, well, he's Bride. Um, and yeah, Sylvie's always fun to have around. I like that when she's kidnapped, she wasn't afraid at all. She was basically like, oh yeah, like here we go again. I guess this is happening. Oh, and that scene um, between her and Rookie on the stage, like the, the magician act, I thought that was really awesome. Like I like that she genuinely enjoyed herself on stage and that she actually kind of holds that moment as something valuable and showcase it showcases that despite her no longer being able to be with her lover, that she can feel joy. Um, it, felt like, it felt like a really healthy perspective for her. Like to make the most out of her life. Now Niles was pretty dope as well. He had a lot of action focus and just hearing him cleaving cleaving through people was pretty sick. He's hella strong, like very powerful. Um, and yeah, uh, Charon and Claudia didn't really do all that much in this novel. I was hoping for there to be more, especially for him. Um, but yeah, Claudia and Illness do have a good relationship. And I like that that was like touched on again. They didn't do much more outside of that, but it was nice that it was touched on. Uh, Bobby and that girl, that was okay. Um, overall, they had a nice moment at the end. It was kind of funny, but yeah, not really much to say about them for this novel. Um, Angelo was good in this novel. I liked how we learned a lot about his past, how we witnessed um, women and children being massacred, and then he leveled the town because of that. He, like, he has a wife and a kid, but he doesn't feel like he deserves happiness. So that was really, that was an interesting, like, adage to his character, that he doesn't really feel like he deserves to have happiness, and then he also has, like, this strict code because he saw something awful in the past. I just really like those kind of two things and those two parts for his character. And I also really love the ending. Um, it's the perfect kind of end for him. He joins the Martillo family. So you're very, very keen to see him again. I really like his design as well. Now, Ennis, she doesn't do much at all. I don't know, like, it feels like Ennis is being sidelined. She doesn't do much at all. Anyway, let's just move on. Now, Firo, um, standard Firo, which is good. He's always trying to be a good person, always trying to do his best, always trying to impress. <laughs> the, the, the best part to me with him is how awkward he is about everything. And also how he didn't want to look into, like, LeBro's memory. Oh, and, and, oh, we're getting it. We're getting to it, right? LeBro. And um, Denkra's standout part, um, which is which is um that... Lebro was the person who put him in the popsicle. Also that he um, seems to have a thing for Sylvie. That also stood out. But yeah, we're now getting into like the really juicy part. So on to Chez. And holy shit, poor kid, poor kid. He's gone through it. So 
the entire time on the ship, he's been feeling off. And despite all of this, he's been doing okay. He helped out some kids, he helped out illness, he's been doing his part. I mean, he was instrumental in all the factions kind of working together. But man, this entire situation on the ship was orchestrated just to cause Shez a feeling of unease and pain. The copycat, or should I say the demolition guy, or should I say life, or should I call him Relesque, orchestrated the situation so it would mirror like the flying pussyfoot incident. And while this isn't like explicitly said, you can infer that the reason for that is because that it's he knows that it's one of the incidents that causes Shez like a feeling of terror. And that's why, and that's basically why he does that. He replicates it so that Shez feels bad. And now there's, you know, there's no point beating around the bush. It's Fermit. He's the master planner. It was Fermit. Fermit, Lebro, Relesque. He's been playing every single side and he's orchestrating everything. He's trying to make everything as similar to the Flying Pussyfoot as he can. And he didn't win. Um, turns out there was still hope yet. But damn, like, what an ass. Like, he's right in front of Shez at the end in Japan, taunting him, making sure to, like, take away any last bit of hope that that kid had. Like, he saw he was too happy and he just had to take it out. <laughs> like, that's just wild. Um, and he was playing everyone from the start. Also, why is he alive? I mean, we don't know. That's obviously going to be a mystery. Like, we always thought that Shez ate him. And that's why he felt so much, like, guilt and annoyance with himself and, like, depression and all that stuff. Um, and then we hear that Lebreu was eaten by Zillard from Fira's memory. So, clearly, something something's going on. Um, and clearly, like, Fermit knows some way to get out of um, being eaten or something. Um, so keen to see what Narita's answer for this is, but yeah, that was that was wild. And yeah, all this time, I was thinking like as I was reading, like where's when's Huey gonna show up? Like um, Elmer's gang were thinking that okay, so Huey Huey should show up at some point. He's the one who invited us. What's going on? Um, but he doesn't. And he but he, what he does is he just casually calls Fermin, and he says, "Are you okay with basically using him as a plot to basically get the immortals onto the ship?" And he's like, "Yeah, it was fine. Whatever." Um, anyways, everything with that end scene was absolutely just crazy, wild. I loved every second of it. It made my head turn. Um, and it made me really look forward to like the novels ahead. But then as I researched, there's no like further volumes outside of, um, the ones like this is the latest uh, volume in the 2000s so far. So this is what everyone's been left with for this, um, this section of the story. So holy shit, that's pretty wild. And it's been like years as well. So that's, that's kind of rough, um, but, you know, the guy's working hard. And the, I'm sure, like, Fermit will be explored in the 1700s, like, as a character. Now, overall, I really like this volume, and for the arc as a whole, it's tough to rank it because I like the arc a lot, but other than the ending, it didn't have, like, a lot of emotional beats, like, compared to, like, maybe the Railroad arc. Like, in that arc, there was a lot of, like, emotional climaxes for, like, Rachel, for Shez, for Jacuzzi, and a lot of cool character intros, that being said, I do really like, like, as far as, like, like real kind of emotional stuff that kind of lasts for, like, ages, I mean, that end scene in, in Japan was, I mean, that was a long time. So maybe I am kind of overvaluing some of those emotional moments from the Railroad arc. We'll have to see. I definitely like it more than the Slash arc. I don't like it more than 1934. Like, the stuff with Sham and all that stuff is just too good. Uh, but, yeah, um, now I have heaps to look forward to in the 2000 arc. And overall, this arc is still just set up. 
And I think the payoff will be sweet. I'm very excited. I'm also excited that Huey's in this storyline. I mean, that's really dope. But man, am I excited like for these volumes to come. Um, and yeah, this is my current thoughts on volume 13 and as the arc as a whole. And now I'm just kind of going to, I'm going to rank the story arcs the best as I can. So we'll see, right? All right, coming in at number eight, we have The Slash. So it's my least favorite. And then coming, which is 1933. Um, coming in at number seven, we have 1930, Rolling Bootleg. Now, the ones above this, um, there is a bit of like a significant gap between these last two. Um, but everything above it is actually really, really close. So number six, 1931, the Grand Punk Railroad. Now, I'm not 100% sure about putting this here, but we'll see. Number five, so 2002, so this story that we are just talking about. Um, honestly, five and six could flip around. I have no idea. Uh, number four, 1932, Drugs and Dominoes. Number three, 1705, uh, Ironic Light Orchestra. Uh, number two, the 1934 arc. And number one, 2000, Children of the Bottom. So those are my rankings, and thanks for listening. Now, thank you for everyone for listening. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Anime Echoes, that's two words. And if you could leave a review or a like, that would be really helpful. Okay, thanks again.